Well, we're in, the series, in this series in the book of James, and I don't know about you, but I find James, uh, this book, to be challenging. It can be hard-hitting, and like all truth from Scripture, it can be challenging until it finds its home in us and we find it's a better way. And, and I'm praying that, that as we meet week by week here at Hillside, as we study God's Word, that it finds its home in you and that it changes the trajectory of our lives into a path of peace and wholeness and joy. And I believe it's going to happen this morning. Today is no different. Let's dive in. We're going to tackle the last part of chapter 4 in the book of James and the first six verses of chapter 5. Look at, look at these guys ready to hand out Bibles to you. If you didn't bring a Bible, just reach out. And uh, James is towards the end, uh, right beside Hebrews. Or you can look at the index at the front of the Bible and find the page number. Uh, James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. And it reads as following. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go, go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. And so, God, we just take this challenging word and we pray. Somehow use that to nourish us and to lead us into life. Pray your grace would be upon us. Open our ears to your truth, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Question for you. Uh, have you ever had plans? And, and I'm, I'm talking about the kind of plans that were like firm plans, solid plans. You've been planning something for a long, long time. And something happened to those plans. They didn't go according to plan. Uh, both my sons... Uh, <laughs> They were planning a, a gap year after high school. Caleb, our eldest, decided way back in grade 11 that he was going to go to Cape and Ray Bible School in England. No surprise that he decided on it. He might, I might, he might have been a little bit influenced by his father who went there like 30 years before. So by the time he graduated, plans were well underway, flights were purchased, all that kind of stuff. Now he gets there, and things are going really well until they weren't. Yeah, it turns out the UK government was going through an interesting season and they audited Caleb's school and they found it wanting under some technical difficulties and, and some bureaucratic issues. And because of that, students that were there under a foreign students, that was, that were there under a visa, student visa, were being asked to leave the country within a certain number of weeks. This was devastating to our son. His dreams of spending a, a nine-month period in England learning about God and growing and all these kind of things and, and traveling some and were dashed what it seemed like in a moment. Thankfully, Caleb, with some of his initiative 
even though he was initially devastated, he was able to ask and uh, find out about uh, an open door in a sister school in Sweden. And three weeks later, he left the UK and he was starting that new school term. Now, funny enough, uh, at that school, small school of just 60 students, this is just an aside, um, there were already four Caleb's in that school. And so en route, they had decided before he came that they would actually call him by his middle name. And so for the entire time he was in Sweden, he went by his middle name, which is Derwin. <laughs> which I think is a great ending to that story. So good. I, I've never met a Derwin, and, and I was shocked when we were meeting friends of his from Sweden, and they were calling him Der, they call him Derwin to this day. Now our second son, who happens to be here, had a similar experience. Some of you remember this story very well because it's a little bit more recent. Noah had applied for and been accepted in an internship program called Serve Seattle, uh, based in, in Seattle, of course, uh, with U Union Gospel Mission. And he was going to be working for nine months in the inner city with, in soup kitchens and working with street people and going to prisons and doing visitation and all these kind of things. And, and Noah had had felt like this was something God was asking him to do. He, was, he became very prepared about this. He'd sent out support letters, and he had a lot of people praying for him, a lot of people in this church. A lot of people had supported him very generously to go, and it all looked fantastic until it didn't. Two weeks before Noah was to go, we, Angel and I, got a desperate call from Noah. His program had been suddenly canceled been running for 20 years, and suddenly this year, it was to be no more. I, I don't think we'd ever heard our boy more upset that day. The same day, he got a deferral letter from his university saying that, that the application he'd had to defer his university to a further year had happened. That came in the very same day he'd heard this program was canceled, so door closed at university, door closed at Surf Seattle. God graciously, in the end, he found himself in all places, Australia. And uh, he was there with Youth with a Mission, and uh, he did mission work in Papua New Guinea during that time. There's an old Yiddish proverb, it, it's very famous, you'll know it very well, that says, man makes plans, God laughs. Our, our, our passage begins with James reminding his readers to take care when it comes to making plans. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go here and, do, and, and spend there and carry on business and make money. He says, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're just a mist that, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And, and then in verse 16, James says, whatever you do, if you're making these ironclad firm plans, don't boast about it. Whatever you do, in James' words, your arrogant schemes all such boasting is evil. Again, James, tell us what you really think. <laughs> no surprise, we see echoes here from James's favorite Old Testament book, the book of Proverbs, where it says in, in Proverbs 27, it says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring. And this passage also echoes the teachings of Jesus. Some, some of you remember Luke chapter 12. Um, Jesus was talking about guarding your heart against greed, and he said, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And Jesus went on to tell this parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. 
he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll, I'll tear down my barns and I'll big, build bigger barns and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many, many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Both, both James and Jesus here speak very pointedly towards those of us who make plans apart from God. Both of those passages talk about the folly of a, a life lived proudly, thinking or believing that life is actually under our control, that we're masters of our days. You know, James, James compares our life to a mist. It's there in the morning, and it's gone by noontime. James obviously didn't live in Vancouver, where our mists last for weeks sometimes. Jesus speaks of the rich man, gloating over his wealth and his plans to to retire, to live high on the hog. And God says to that man, you fool, your life will be demanded of you this very night. Both Jesus and, and James remind us here that, that somehow to keep in, in our minds that our lives are actually rather brief and they're kind of out of our control. They're not in our hands. We don't know when our lives will be demanded of us. Now, it's, it, it's, it's interesting, both types of arrogance, arrogant plans that James and, and Jesus address have to do with money. Uh, J, James' example would have been a common image in his day, that of a, a traveling merchant. His words would have been the motto of a typical business person. You know, we will go, we will spend, we will do business, we will make profit, we will make money. Now, now you got to know that James is not rebuking business people or, or entrepreneurs or those with economic giftedness. But I think he and Jesus are warning us very specifically about the power that money has that can give us a, a false sense of security. And worse than that, it can lead us to a sense of independence from God that can be dangerous to our spiritual states. I read an article a while back about sociologist Robert Bella, who's, who's written about the poverty of affluence, the poverty of riches. He's quoted as saying that the people in North America are among the richest people on the planet, but the truth of our condition is our poverty. Bella says, we are as impoverished as the poorest nations of the world because material possessions have not brought us happiness or meaning. You know, I, I think we tend to see wealth or, or financial strength as kind of an unqualified advantage. If you're, if you're rich, it's just a, a good, good thing. The Bible actually says the, the opposite. It says, if you have loads of money and loads of wealth, beware. It, it could be a snare. It, it could distract you from actually true riches, riches from God. My son did survive Papua New Guinea and, and Australia, and he made it back, and he's now going to UBC. On, on Friday, uh, it, it, by the way, he's living in this crazy, crazy rich neighborhood. He, him and a bunch of friends are... are 
it's, it's bizarre. They're, they're like poor students living in this, uh, this, this beautiful house in a neighborhood surrounded by mansions. And on Friday, I picked Noah up. We were going to spend the day together, and we drove slowly through that neighborhood, and we literally stopped the car at points. And we're, it's like in Carisdale and, and Southwest Marine Drive. Uh, just we're looking at these mansions. These, they're enormous, and, and you couldn't help but be impressed by the cars and the gardens and the gates of these places. It was nuts. And, and there was part of us just going, I'd love to... I'd love just a, a weekend in that house, right? They're part of that, but you know, it's hard not to be impressed. But there was also, I, I remember feeling just a little bit of anxiety for these people. And, and it hit me. For, for many of these people, it'd be hard for them to come, come to the conclusion that they're lost without God. Because they seem to, at least from a worldly point of view, they seem to have all that they need. And so the Bible says, James would say, don't envy wealthy people because their wealth can't bring their, their salvation. Their wealth can't bring them meaning. It can't bring them life. In fact, their wealth may prove to, to be a snare to them, keeping them from God. And so James, he gives this golden line in verse 15 where he contrasts that kind of proud folly, that kind of you know, foolishness that might put its trust in paychecks or bank accounts or, or savings or stuff. And he contrasts that with the wisdom of humility. When it comes to your life, your plans, even your money, James says, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Sometimes when I think of that verse, I can't help but thinking of my dad. Um, I had the privilege of journeying with my dad in the last two weeks of, of his life. He was dying of cancer, and uh, he, he seemed like he was going down quick. Um, kind of cool, cool side story is that during those last two weeks, we were there visiting Ontario where he lived, and I was able to sit with my dad every day for hours upon hours, and we actually planned his funeral together. He had asked me to do his, his service, and I, we planned that out. But we were leaving him for about a 24-hour period, and I remember saying to my dad, Dad, I'll see you on Sunday. And his response to me was this, I'll see you on Sunday, Lord willing. And actually quite an appropriate place to say it. He was on his deathbed. He actually didn't know whether I'd see him on Sunday. In fact, my, my dad would pass away. He made it to Sunday, but he didn't make it past Monday. He died on early Monday morning. My dad... His life was demanded of him. But you see, at, at some point, my dad in his life surrendered his life to Jesus, and he put his life, his days, his plans, his future into God's hands. Somehow my, my dad came to believe at the bottom of his heart that God was good and that God could do a better job managing his life than he could. And so he'd always say that. He'd always say, Lord willing. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was a mantra of my dad. He was always referring to this James 4 passage. But he was in effect saying, I'm not in charge of my life. I'm not driving the bus anymore. My, my days, my minutes, my hours are in God's hands. Practically speaking for all of us who have given our lives to God, who have 
have signed up to be apprentices of Jesus, it means we kind of have to hold our plans in life just a little loosely, don't we? God has this relentless habit, I see, of taking us on detours, surprises. Anyone, anyone found God leading you on a detour in your life? I, I, I like the title of a book I, I came across recently called, I Didn't See It Coming. <laughs> God, is, God is God. And how can we know what a day would bring? So it's going to mean trust. It, it's it's going to mean believing that God knows what he's doing. It's going to mean cultivating this sort of daily kind of humility in terms of making our plans. You can read this in, in the Apostle Paul. You see it in his life. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord wills it, if the Lord is willing. In the same letter in chapter 16, he says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. I, I, I like what Dennis Mackle wrote of his English friend, Sir uh, James Barry. He tells us that as James Barry grew older, he'd, he'd never make plans for a social engagement, even a social engagement at, at some distant date. He was always saying, short notice now. As I was thinking about this, I, I was thinking about how this little line from James could become our prayer. Lord willing. We could pray that over all of our lives. We could pray that over our children, over our families, over our futures, over our plans, over how we handle the material resources that God sends our way. We could be praying this kind of prayer, Lord willing. It's not that different from the prayer we see modeled by Jesus where he said to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. It's a challenging prayer to pray, folks. It really is. It's a prayer of surrender. Who likes surrendering? Surrendering on one hand feels like defeat. It, it, it feels like it opens you up to some kind of vulnerability and, and maybe a powerlessness. And yet Jesus says it's those who, who aren't clinging tight to their lives that, that gain their life. He says those who lose their lives gain their lives. I, I saw a line from Craig Reschel a couple of weeks ago that's just stuck with me. I love it. God can do more with your surrender than you can do with your control. Isn't that good? God can do more with your letting go, you know, giving the steering wheel over to him than, than you can do with your holding tight. And, and, I, and I wonder, have you prayed this prayer over your life? Some of you might, might have prayed this prayer, Lord willing, many, many years ago, but we have this habit of kind of taking our lives back into our hands. And I, and I wonder if maybe again for some of us in this room today, it, it'd be an important prayer for you to pray again. Lord willing. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I, I, I want to put my life, my future, my days, I, I want to ask you to steer my life. That, that might be the kind of prayer you need to pray today. And there may be those of you who've just never prayed that prayer. Can I tell you something? You can't pray that prayer unless you believe that God is actually good and that his ways are better than your ways. If you think your ways are better than his ways, you'll actually hold tight. But if you, if you go, he is God and he loves me and he's good, then he's got the best possible plans for my life. Fascinating to me 
that both my boys, their, their comment on their years away, their, their gap years, was the second plans, the plans that God opened up for them when plan A seemed to cancel, they both think that those were better than, than plan A. God's plan B was better than plan, their plan A. Lord willing, it's a game changer. When we pray that kind of prayer, there, there's security and there's power and there's impact in our lives that comes from submitting our lives to God. Got to move on. This section ends with this strange line, therefore, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And again, you kind of ask James, like, like, James, this is like a change of topic here. Where are you going with this? Well, in the context, James has urged his audience to, to take God's will into, like, like, take it seriously into all of their planning for their lives. And, and included in that is doing the good thing that God is calling you to do. And scholars say that in this context, James was including in that idea of, of good thing was how you use and steward your material resources. James would say, are you still living by your own financial rules? Like we see in this passage, I will do this, I will spend, I will go, I will save. Or have you, have you taken seriously God's call to steward the resources? And, and are you living now under his kingdom economics? You know, you've been given these resources for a reason. Are you you're doing the good with them that you know your heart he calls you to do? And, and if somehow we're able to float by that verse without it getting our attention, I think we often move right on. On comes chapter 5 where James really gets in our face. Let's, let me read just a couple lines again. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery coming on you. Thank you, James. Very encouraging. Uh, your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The, the cries of the harvesters have reached the, the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Now, if you read those verses, especially if you're new to the, the Bible, you, you kind of go, just who is James talking to here? He's writing this nice letter. He's writing specifically to, you know, uh, the early Christians who were largely made up of impoverished Jewish people, poor people. This doesn't seem like it applies to them. Commentators point out that the literary genre of these words is very similar to Old Testament prophets. That like, prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel or, or Jeremiah or Zephaniah. And in these books, prophets were writing primarily to the people of God, but occasionally there are declarations to pagan peoples. Like, like you, you find these little moments, excerpts, where he, they're writing to like Moab or Tyre and Sidon or, or Babylon and Assyria. And commentators believe that James is doing something similar here. He's writing a letter to the people of God, but as he's doing it, it's as if he's lifting up his head and addressing the larger nation. It was meant for the world and specifically, it was targeting the self-serving rich. And his words sound radical, like he's having kind of a bad day or something but they're actually quite profound. It begins in verse 1 by calling these self-centered rich to, to weep and to wail. Now, when James was, was saying this, just he wasn't condemning all rich people. Many examples in the Bible of people being blessed by God, um, people like Abraham, Job, Lydia, Philemon. What James is implying here, when, when he calls rich people to weak, especially writing to impoverished folk who, who are reading his letter, He's reminding them, again, of this theme 
they've got no reason to envy rich people. They really don't. Many people envy rich people. James says no reason for that. As we already said, riches cannot buy happiness. Instead, they often can be a snare, they can be a trap. Then he goes on, uh, in the next verse, he talks about the self-serving rich in verse three. He says, your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And here, here James is condemning the self-centered act of hoarding wealth. So he condemns hoarding, but, but there's a, a positive counterpoint here. It comes back to that good thing we know that we're to do as part of following God's will. Don't hoard. Instead, be generous and give. Let me say, just clarify for a moment here. When he says don't hoard, he doesn't necessarily mean don't save. Uh, the Bible encourages saving. In, in Proverbs, the Bible, the, the resourcefulness of the ant is kind of lifted up. It praises the ant for its capacity to store for the future. Uh, it, the Apostle Paul says it's a natural thing for parents to save for their children. James is not con- condemning responsible saving. He's condemning self-centered hoarding. I, I wonder if you remember years ago, uh, Bertha Adams Bertha Adams was 71 years old when she died alone in her home in Florida. The the coroner report uh, simply stated that she died of malnutrition. You know, after wasting away to 50 pounds, she just couldn't live anymore. And and, and when the authorities investigated her home, they said it it was a pigsty. It was like nothing they'd ever seen before. All her clothes were were tattered and worn on all her, her meals had been scrounged from neighbors. And as they searched through her stuff, they found two keys. These two keys were to two safety deposit boxes. And, and they opened the first box and they found hundreds of, of stocks and, and bonds, and uh, they found $200,000 in cash. And they opened up the, the second safety deposit box and, and more of the same, stocks and bonds and, and $600,000 in, in cash. Together, just a massive money, millions. But because Bertha hoarded her money, it was absolutely no good to her. It was no good to her. It was no good to anybody else. It was no good to the causes of God, why God would have blessed her in such a profound way. And that's why James condemns hoarding, because it doesn't help anybody. It's no good for anyone when we live that way. But he says, be generous. That's the positive counterpoint. Let me ask you, have any of you ever ever been the recipient of significant generosity? And and it could be finances, it could be something sacrificial that someone did for you. I I, I can think of too many examples in our own lives to count. Uh, Angel and I, we were remembering this week, um, for years, a family in this church, every fall would give us three or four nights away at their timeshare in Whistler. And for years, we took our family up to Whistler each fall. And I was reflecting this week. I was thinking, man, that set a pattern for our lives of kind of rest and restoration that, that actually, I think, was, was a huge blessing to us in, in deeper ways than we'd ever think. It wasn't just a vacation. It was like a, a, a change of life for us. And, and so, hugely grateful and, and, and celebrate that generosity. But here's the thing. We were blessed. Guess what? They were blessed too. They couldn't stop talking about how blessed they were in their gift to us. It brought them so much joy. 
Folks, generosity does that. It multiplies joy. It's a joy multiplier. It is more blessed, Jesus said, to to give than to receive. James is, is saying, don't hoard your wealth, but be generous and give to people and give to the causes of God. Notice in verse 3, your, your gold and silver will corrode one day. They're going to turn to rust. You know, if, Jesus, if James were here today and he came to our, our homes and our apartments, he'd, he'd look around our places and I think he'd want to say to us, hey, these things all have a shelf life. They all have an expiry date. There'll be a day when your money, your wealth will be no good anymore. So while you have it, use it responsibly, but give, be generous. Use it to make a difference in in God's kingdom and and in lives of people around you. Verse four, James continues. He says, don't hoard, don't be generous, but instead be generous. Then he continues, look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. James here is is rebuking incredibly rich landowners for exploiting the poor and powerless workers. Folks, this is all too real a story in our day. We have new friends, they're they're new Canadians, and uh, they've told us the story of how they went from country to country as their journey, uh, as a displaced family. They had to flee their home because of war. And, and they tell us about how in one of those locations, they got hired on and were working 18 hours a day. 18 hours a day, slaving away in a factory. So mistreated, and paid pennies on the day. Just enough to eke out a living. It happens. You want to know more about that? Look to an organization like International Justice Mission, who are on a mission to to free modern-day slavery and to, 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 you know, shine a light on all those awful, awful situations, people who are living and, and working in horrible conditions in our world today. So he's obviously condemning the, the exploiting of the poor and the powerless. And, and, and folks, if you read the Bible, you know that it's a very serious crime in God's economy to, to exploit the weak or the disadvantaged. Now, bringing this just home here a little bit, James would say, I think to those of us who are running businesses or are owners or managers, don't take advantage of people. Don't rip off your employees. You know, take care of them well. A positive counterpoint here would be to be just, be fair, be merciful. For you who are running a business or an owner or manager, the bottom line can never be just about the bottom line. You gotta have a grander vision, Jesus would say. If we're consumers, some of you are relaxed because you're not in that category, but all of us are consumers. And I believe James would say, be responsible in your consumption. If you know of companies that exploit poor nations, poor people, man, don't support them through your consumption. Don't buy their products. This is is practical Christianity. It's about seeking to be just and fair and compassionate and supporting companies and businesses that are. Folks, the fact is, the more of us that actually do that, it can actually positively change the behavior of companies. They will care if we care. If we don't care, they'll keep on doing it. Okay, just one more point. James says, don't hoard, be generous, don't exploit your workers, be just, be fair. 
Then finally in verse five he says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. In verse five, James is obviously condemning living in luxury. And the positive counterpoint to that would be to live simply. Question, how do we use our money if we are followers of Christ? How do we use our money? Everyone thinks the hard part about being a Christian is the tithe, you know, giving 10% to God. That's the simple part. That may not be easy, but that's relatively simple. The complex part is what do I do with the 90%? What do I do with the the 90% that God allows me to keep and manage? That's the more complex question. You know, implicit in the North American dream is the prevailing assumption that you need to get ahead You need to succeed. You need to be successful. You need to have bigger, better, nicer things so you can be upwardly mobile in your status and in your lifestyle. That's the prevailing assumption of the North American dream. Uh, No one states this dream more bluntly than the lottery. Those who advertise the lottery, man, they're so clever. Uh, In one way or another, they say, wouldn't it be awesome to be rich? Isn't that the message of the lottery? And here's the thing. We buy it hook, line, and sinker. The average British Columbian spends $226 a year on lottery tickets because we think it would be great to be rich. That's the gospel of the lottery. But it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ who came and was downly mobile and served the world. It's a very different gospel. It's a very different gospel. You, You know... Some of you here today just saying, you know, statistically speaking, you're going to be very wealthy. Some of you already are. But you'll inherit some money, uh, or or you bought the next startup company, the hit startup company at 10 bucks, and and it's taken off, and suddenly you're rich. You bought a home in the lower mainland like 30 years ago, 20 years ago. By the way, don't brag about that, you know, because those who aren't, haven't, it's kind of sad. Now, when that happens, when, when, you're, when it comes in for you, what are you going to do? Will you live in self-indulgent luxury, or will you use your wealth to serve God and people? Let me say this. Study after study show that rich people give less of their money away than poor people. Rich people, statistically speaking, give less of their money away than poor people do. Isn't that interesting? I, I told my, my sons who are students, I said, if you can't tithe when you're making no money, when you're living on government loans, if you can't actually put God with your finances then, you won't, you won't do it when you're making 100 grand a year. You, you won't do it when you have wealth. You, you, kid, parents, uh, teach your kids to give when they're young because it, it's like training wheels. It, we, we need to, to learn that. It, it's counter to, to our beliefs, but we gotta do that. Isn't that interesting? I think it should be the exact opposite for, for Christians, though. You know, the more we make, especially if we have more than we need to live on, the more that we give away. The Bible calls us to, to give generously and to live simply. Now, just to clarify, the Bible also celebrates celebration, <laughs> encourages us to enjoy the, the earth and what he's given us. And, and there's this motif of feasting throughout the whole of Scripture, I love the fact that Jesus loves to eat, right? 
Um, Marva Dawn, who is a scholar and a frequent visitor to Regent College, I've heard her speak many times, she, she talks a lot about simple living. And she, and she says that from Monday to Saturday, she lives very simply. But then on Sunday, which is her Sabbath, she eats the best of foods, you know, the best of, of, of meats, the best of everything. And, and I think it's a good thing because the Bible wants us to celebrate, to be a celebration people. I guess one of the problems we have in a rich culture like ours is that we can be celebrating 365 days a year. A lot of us can afford to do that. We can be living high in the hog all the time. There's a place for, for celebration, but there's also a place for living simply. But James is saying here that there's not a place for living in constant self-indulgence, luxury, maintaining a lifestyle of consumption to, to impress other people with lots of waste because that's not the way of Jesus. Anyone feel like this is hitting a little close to home today? Just a little bit? Yeah? Love James. Now, as I close, I, I'd like to, to encourage each of us to take a step or two that I, I think might help us to live more simply and justly and generously and wisely. James, James' words are kind of in your face and kind of shocking because, I, I, I think, because James is warning us about the tremendous perverting power of money. Folks, there is no harder place in our lives to pray, Lord willing, than over our pocketbooks, over the way we spend and save and live with our finances. This is the toughest place to surrender, right? So challenging. And here's the thing. Left unchecked, it can be a snare that leads us away from, from joy, that leads us away from dependence on God. Let me, let me just offer some practical action steps you could take which might help you practically live more simply and justly and generously. Number one, tithe. Give 10% of your income to God and his purposes. Uh, or begin by, by giving, you know, increasing your giving by one or two percent. How about this? Give a favorite thing away. I'm, I'm not talking about a surplus thing that you don't need anymore. Go throughout your home and find something you really love and give that away. Yeah? No? Sell something you own and put that towards kingdom causes. Take the money that you get from selling that thing on Craigslist and, and, and give it away. How about this? Live for one month without buying anything for yourself. I'm not talking about food and gas. I'm talking about anything, any luxury, no, no, no new clothes, nothing. Some of you, some of you ought to try, I, I know those of you who are like, you know, Black Friday shoppers are just going through the shakes right now, even thinking of such a thing, right? You know, why are you mentioning this in November, Derwin? I mean, you guys would save a lot of money if you decided that this was going to be your spending fast month right now. Like if you said from this Sunday on for the next 30 days, I'm not going to spend anything on myself. Well, you know, I think it's hilarious. Christmas and Boxing Day, right? Just, just an aside here. You, you know, we, have, we, we give these gifts in celebration of Christmas on Christmas Day, and the next day, what do we do? We go buy more things for ourselves. It's like crazy consumption, right? So going to fa I've done this. Uh, through Lent many different times, and I, have been, I've, I felt like the, the tentacles of money loosened their grip over my life, and I found greater freedom and joy. How about this? Go without one regular luxury. 
That latte that you buy on your way to work, make a cup of coffee at home <laughs> instead. Do, do, and then, then what you do is give the savings away. Whatever money you would, would save, give that away. Consider switching your coffee to fair trade. Think about supporting companies. Think of changing your purchasing habits. Um, how about this? If you run a business, do something extravagant for an employee or for a direct report. Give them a bonus or a special gift. Next time you're at a restaurant, this one's going to rock some of your worlds. Double tip. Double tip. And if you're a cheap tipper, repent. No, no nudging each other, Mackie and Grace. You've been recorded now, Mackie and Grace. You're on. Okay, yeah. Wow, I called you out there, didn't I? You know, if you can afford to eat at a restaurant, you can afford to be a generous tipper, folks. I've often, I've, we've often had this conversation that the difference between a bad tip and a good tip is usually like two bucks, right? Difference between a bad tip and a good tip or a reasonable tip and a great tip is $2. Add $2 to every tip that you give and you're, you've just become a generous tipper, unless you're a crummy tipper to begin with. And final, final thought. This is the, the mind rock one. Do a Christmas rethink. Is there a way that you could trim the excess from your Christmas celebrations this year? Is there a way to spend less, less on yourselves and to give away more? And folks, this is the time to think about it because the train is already at the station, isn't it? Don't you feel it culturally? It's like, it's like come on board, everybody. We're going to spend, spend, spend. And then we'll all be depressed together in January when we get our credit card bills, right? Man, I, I, it, it could revolutionize this church if we all decided, hey, we're going to spend a lot less and we're going to give to the poor. I love the fact on Christmas Eve we're having an offering for, for this refugee program in, in this little church in Iraq that's reaching out to refugees. I think that's an awesome time to do it. It's like saying, I want to give more to, to people who really need it because most of us don't need one other thing in our homes, right? And what are we going to do? We're going to load up our kids. We're going to load up ourselves. We're going to live in the lap of luxury. This is the time to actually make a, uh, do a rethink. Folks, I, I don't pretend to say that this is easy because the, the cultural sway is very, very strong. It's, it's so enticing to spend on ourselves and to, to live self-absorbed, self-centered lives when it comes to our finances. This is the kind of thing that I, I encourage you to talk about in your small groups together, how, thinking about how can you, you know, do less, be less bound to, to our culture's values when it comes to money and join Jesus in his kingdom economy. I challenge you to take a step or two and it could transform your life. In closing, Naomi's gonna come and uh, she's gonna lead us in a song. She's actually gonna sing a song by Adria Saad loosely based on the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The, the, the song is called, I shall not want. Um, we're gonna have the words on the screen. I'm gonna ask you not to sing and let's let her sing. For you, I, I would encourage you to have this as a prayer. It's a, it's a significant prayer that if you pray, I, I believe God can use that to change your life. Where we invite Jesus to speak into our following of him. Let's listen to Naomi.
from the need to be understood from the need to be accepted from the fear of being lonely not true when you taste his goodness you shall not want you'll have everything you need let's pray Lord uh, God these have been hard words this morning challenging words and yet we I, I believe you're offering us life again you're saying I got I got better things for you than you've ever dreamed from or imagined Lord, you invite us to put our lives, our days, our hours, our, our very future into your hands. Lord, we ask you to help us do that. Forgive us when we get controlling or proud, God, where we take on to the, you know, hold on to the reins of our lives and, and where we need to let go. I pray you'd give us grace to trust you. Help us, Lord, to learn how to, to pray, Lord, willing. Lord, willing, not my will, but yours be done. We also pray, Lord, you'd help us find true riches in you. <laughs> we, 
We confess, Lord, that we uh, so often envy the rich. We want what they have. We want more. And so we ask that you'd give us the, the right perspective towards money and towards wealth, Lord. Help us to avoid hoarding. Help us to avoid injustice and the, the overindulgent luxury that we're prone to in our country. Rather, I pray you'd enable us to live more simply, to act justly, and to give more generously. And as someone else prayed, O God, to those who have hunger, give bread. And to us who have bread, give the hunger for justice. Amen. We uh, are celebrating uh, now a beautiful baby that's been born, Nathaniel uh, Isaiah, and uh, we're thrilled for, for Washington and Nicole and little Nathan, Nathaniel. And so uh, if you want to eat some cake, there's cake at the back. I encourage you to dive into that. We've got uh, an opportunity to do a gift at the gift table over there. Um, other coffee and refreshments back that way. If you'd like prayer this morning, uh, as always, uh, after our services, you might have a need in your life or you just might need an encouraging word. Our, our prayer team is here to pray with you. Um, and, uh, but I'd encourage you all, would you stand together and receive this benediction? And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn toward you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you.